So we are still on hot button topics. If you remember, we kicked off the fall with a conversation about the census and representation and then slid that right into representation in the media and in particular movies with the head of inclusive content at Lionsgate Film, Kamala Avila Salmon. And now we bring you another hot button topic that I think we've all heard a lot about in the last couple of years, but we've never yet touched on the show. QAnon. Did you all gasp or lean into the speaker like, yeah, yeah, bring me more? Okay, maybe. Misasha, what was your impression of QAnon before we spoke with our guests today? Okay, so you know how I'm not on any form of social media. And so my impression of QAnon was really limited to all of the documentaries that actually we do talk about in this episode, the Vice Media one in particular, but yeah. You'll hear what I say in the episode, but I, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole as to who was Q, but maybe that was the wrong question all along. So that's kind of been my, like, give me a good conspiracy theory. I didn't know much, to be perfectly honest. What about you? Me? I have to be honest. So I didn't know that much aside from, and I honestly didn't see much on social media that was specifically like, oh, that is a QAnon post. But I did see a lot of posts referencing Save the Children from certain people on my feed. And so there was that part of it with people I knew. But then in terms of what I was reading about in the papers about you know conspiracy theories and QAnon, I judged. I have to admit that I w- was wrong, as it turns out, as we'll learn in the show, to judge as harshly. Because this conversation we're about to share gave me some perspective on what was really happening with the development of the conspiracy theory and sort of what risks we face as a country if we let this fester. And spoiler alert, it's not good to let this fester. And really, I think the biggest thing was, you know, what we can each do differently that I wasn't doing beforehand when I was judging hard and sort of being like, those are the other, right? As opposed to everything I really try to talk about, which is let's see the humanity, let's be kind to one another, be in community with one another. That was something I, in hindsight, really internally was judging hard. Yeah. So I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, I think the community aspect or like really the power of community too was highlighted for me in a way that I wasn't expecting here. But also speaking of communities... We have one month until our book launch. And for those of you who are at all interested in joining a new community, we're calling our book launch team, email us at hello at dearwhitewomen.com for details on what's involved. And you can choose whether you want to do it or not. But yeah, we just put out a call for teammates on Instagram, but it is also given the number differential, highly likely that you are not there following us yet. So we want to invite you listeners to support us too. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Would you two please introduce yourselves for our audience? I am Mia Bloom. I'm a professor of communication at Georgia State University, and I'm also the International Security Fellow at the New America. So I do work both as an academic and I work, you know, in policy worlds. And I am Sofia Mospolenko. I'm a psychologist. I'm a social and clinical psychologist. And I'm a research fellow at the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Group at Georgia State University, as well as at the Center for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, the National Consortium. Which is why we wanted you to introduce yourselves, because folks, we have a lot of experience here. 
I would like to talk about QAnon. And we have read some headlines and we know some basics, but what I would really like to do to level set the conversation is to go over QAnon's core beliefs to make sure we're all on the same page, because I have a sneaking suspicion that unless the title of this episode is going to throw us into unknown SEO territory, most of our listeners are not actively involved in QAnon, so aren't totally well-versed in all of the things that you know about what they stand for and what they're doing. So if we can talk about their core beliefs, the pastel, the pedophile ring theories, that sort of thing, that would be fantastic. QAnon is one of these baseless conspiracy theories that emerged in the underbelly of uh, the internet. It started out in these chans, so 4chan and then 8chan, and then 8chan became 8kun. And the idea of the conspiracy is almost a recycling of existing anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, anti-gay, anti-people of color, all these tropes. And there's this marriage where they all blend in together. And so a lot of QAnon uh, existed before 2017 in October when it first emerged. So, for example, Pizzagate predates QAnon, but it's part of it, as well as this idea of lizard people, which goes back to 1999. But a lot of what is linking it together is this idea that there is a global cabal that is manipulating everything and has been controlling the world since time began. And what QAnon is innovative is saying that the only person that could save the children and break the strength of the cabal was Donald John Trump. And so there were a number of predictions around Trump being reelected about, for example, the very first Q drop, which was these little hints or little pieces of information that formed like a clue, part of a puzzle saying that Hillary Clinton was going to get arrested. And of course, Hillary Clinton didn't get arrested. Trump wasn't reelected. And almost every single one of their premonitions or their predictions failed to come true. And so now we're in a world in which we've got, if the uh, polls are representative surveys, are representative of the number of people that believe in it, we're looking at possibly 30 million people that believe some degree of QAnon, that there is this global conspiracy theory that they are trafficking children, raping children, and drinking their blood. If I could add, the 30 million is in the USA alone. These are representative polls of American adults. So projecting from their number of about 17% believing in QAnon, that makes about 30 million. But QAnon is a global phenomenon. We have followers in Australia, in Canada, in the UK, in Europe, in Asia, all over the world. So we can't really tell how many there are, but it's significantly more than 30 million worldwide. I'm kind of speechless right now. <laughs> That's a large number of people who would believe in what you said straight up is a baseless conspiracy theory. And when you talk about lizard people, you talk about drinking children's blood. I mean, it sounds like it's a scene from a horrible fiction film or something like that, right? But people believe this as reality. And one of the things you just mentioned was that parts of this conspiracy theory have lived for a long time. You know, you said the basis in anti-Semitism. I know in your book, Pastels and Pedophiles, you also talk about Hollywood. But I would love to just expound on this anti-Semitism and, you know, understanding how their root beliefs helps us make sense of this phenomenon. One of the things that Sophia and I noticed from the outset is that you would have lots of commentaries, whether it was in, in print or on television, say, anti-Semitic tropes. You know, and we're both researchers and like, 
what are the tropes? And so we went and we did this deep dive. And what was so interesting was seeing how much was rehashed. So for example, David Icke, who created this notion of the lizard people in 1999, he has a global cabal and it's very anti-Semitic. And so a lot of this stuff is knit together with this basically anti-Semitic idea that Jews control the media, that Jews control politics, that they are some malevolent force. But when you go down into these anti-Semitic tropes and you trace them going back to, let's say, 1902, this Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was brought to the United States by Henry Ford, then you realize that even the protocols were plagiarized and were fabricated. So almost everything in QAnon is a fake. And for us, what was so ironic, since you mentioned, Sarah, the Hollywood aspect, they call Hollywood pedowood and they say that Hollywood is full of pedophiles. But we found something like 15 different parts of QAnon were ripped off of movie, either the plot of a movie or the plot of a book. And we thought, you know, it's interesting for a group that hates Hollywood so much, they plagiarize a lot from Hollywood. So I've had these random one-off conversations with various people about QAnon. And I know there was sort of this big expose and or several of them around who is Q, right? Who is the person that original, original in heavy air courts, since we just discussed how these themes have been going on for years and centuries, but who is that original Q? And so, you know, when I think about that question, I'm curious about, you know, your theory as to who the Q is, or then as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking also, is that the wrong question to be asking? Like, should we really be asking why we want to believe there is a Q out there? And so because of my own personal rabbit hole, I've been really interested to ask you both this. Vice News did six hours of documentary You had HBO do six hours of documentary. There's been a number of other shows, including CNN, that have uh, tried to delve into it. And my guess is that when these documentarians first started out, thinking that they would unmask Q would help undermine people's belief in it and target the credibility of it. So that if you, you know, remember there was that thing about, you know, some 300 pound man in a woman's basement. You know, this idea that if it wasn't some high level insider in the Pentagon that had this, you know, special clearance and unique knowledge, and we found out that it was Ron Watkins or whomever, that that would actually have an impact. I guess the problem is that in the interim three years that it took probably to write the documentary, pitch the documentary, fund the documentary, film it, edit it. And for it to come out, most people kind of don't care who Q really is now because the movement has taken on a life of its own. But what we were seeing, and there's now been since the book was published, analytics done on the use of language. And so people like Jim Swartzen, who this is all that he does is QAnon. It looks like it's very likely, as we guessed, more than one person who was generating these Q drops at different points in time, which I think you get a sense of that from the documentaries, that it's not been the same one individual the entire time. But that one of the things we put in the book is, it's like the Dread Pirate Roberts in in Princess Bride, that it's the name that was important, that it didn't really matter if it went from individual to individual as they passed along a baton, that ultimately 
this idea of a queue. And so at this point now where there's so many people who believe either a little bit or a lot of these the folklore, as Sophia called it, folklore with a queue, I don't know if like telling people, listen, it's Ron Watkins. It's this douchebag in the Philippines who's kind of on the side of generating porn, creating these cue drops in order to mess with us. I don't even think it matters. What we see with um, confirmation bias and people doubling and tripling down is that they will find some sort of explanation. Oh, you know, well, it's just Q is using him to go through him in order to influence. But I mean, it's not that it's the wrong question. It was the right question three years ago. I think now it's a good question, but it might even be too late. So just to put this a little bit in a broader perspective, I think we Westerners living in this individualized culture, right? We tend to understand history and politics in terms of personalities. So we're thinking about World War II and we're thinking Hitler, right? Or we're thinking about, you know, the Soviet repressions and we're thinking Stalin. That's just the way our mind works to comprehend things because we are centered on individual. But I want to invite us here today, as well as, you know, the readers of the book, I try to do that in the book as well, to view this problem from a more collectivist perspective, right? How many, you know, possibilities there could have been of people posting, you know, weird cryptic stuff online five years ago, 10 years ago, even with QAnon, the first Q drops appeared in 2016, 17, but the huge following didn't appear until the COVID lockdowns. So it's not enough to have this one or several people with radical ideas sharing them. It takes the readiness and willingness of millions of people to really follow in their footsteps, share their own versions of these ideas, invite their friends and family. And that's the phenomenon that I think for us living in this society right now is really important to understand, not just who Q is or, you know, what their agenda is or was, but how are all of these people, some of them we know, our friends, neighbors, colleagues, family members, how and why would they want to, you know, read something like that. And then once they did to actually like it or share it or talk about it, that's really where, you know, we need expertise and understanding and hopefully something in place to counter these effects. I apparently have a first cousin who believes in QAnon. I found that out just a few weeks ago after the book was published. I was like, wow. So when we say that there's likely someone in your kinship network and your friend network or among the people you work with, that believes in QAnon, even us, even people within our own families. So it's not just dumb people. It's not just these people who are wearing a tinfoil hat that we can just ignore, minimize, and make fun of. We have people who believe in QAnon who are educated, people who might even be medical professionals. And that becomes really dangerous because part of QAnon isn't just the belief in the cabal, it has now metastasized to be anti-vaccine and anti-mask. So if you have someone who's a nurse or a medical professional who believes in QAnon and is now spouting anti-vaccine or anti-masking you know, rhetoric, that is incredibly dangerous and can do a lot of harm. It's like you read the notes that I had just added, which was, I wanted to ask, can you just, because <laughs> I just wrote, you know, what is the harm 
obviously the anti-mask movement is a very tangible thing in this moment for us to be considered when we're talking about safety. What other potential harm comes from the 17% millions and millions of the adult American population believing in conspiracy theories? So we think the biggest problem with QAnon is not the threat of physical violence, though granted there were some individuals to date who have engaged in, in horrific acts of violence, such as killing their own children because they thought they were carrying lizard DNA or in a different example, because the mother thought the children were destined to become victims of the cabal. So they thought killing them would actually save them in a perverted sense. But these are a tiny, tiny minority, something like fewer than 100 incidences of violence inspired by QAnon. We think the bigger danger is the threat to the institutions that run our country, the threat into democracy, the undermining of mutual trust and public faith in things that make our lives the way they are in this country. Public trust is this like fundamental building block of society. We can't really function in our daily lives unless we agree on some basic things like the laws, like some rules, including, you know, when we're driving, when we're shopping, when we're participating in schooling for our children and our communities in different ways. Unless we all agree on those, the society just can't function. And you start encountering things like these, you know, breakdowns of, air travel because people are causing huge disruptions because of their belief systems or, you know, disruptions to school functioning because people are protesting school mandates or day-to-day operations based on their conspiracy theories. So it's a lot less glaring than physical violence. Yeah, but it's very insipid. And long-term, it has a huge potential to inflict lasting and serious damage to our quality of life as a nation. I mean, one of the things we're seeing also, and Sophia just touched upon it, we saw, you know, we monitor QAnon, not just within, you know, having looked at the Q drops and studying the background of QAnon and the history of the criminal acts associated with QAnon, even prior to January 6th. But we see what they say amongst themselves when they don't realize that we're there. And they're very anti-LGBTQ, especially the T's. They are very anti-critical race theory. They're very anti-immigrant. So what's happening is they are telling their followers, which again, potentially could be in the millions in the U.S., to take control of school boards. So we don't know, like the danger is also this next generation. You know, Sophia and I have been studying radicalization for decades. We know that many of these terrorist groups like indoctrinated or brainwashed children to grow up believing a certain value system that isn't a value system that we share. Like, oh yes, you wanna put on a suicide belt and go blow up a bunch of US soldiers. That's not a really good outcome for our kids, but they had convinced people that this is the best thing your kids could do. And so we're not saying that QAnon are suicide bombers, but they are shaping their children's views of the world in such a pernicious way that it undermines mainstream media, the institutions of democracy, but also how maybe we interact with other, you know, with the browning of America, with the fact that we foresee in the next census that we haven't just lost the plurality, you know, in terms of the way that they're positioning themselves. For us, it was also really important to emphasize 
the kind of racist nature of QAnon because QAnon is trying to recruit people of color now. It's really started with sort of white women, white men, white people. And now they realize they have to expand their networks if they're going to control school boards, if they're going to run for election. People like Boebert and Green were elected in very white districts. But as they are more and more candidates for 2022, they are in places like Florida and California, which themselves are are multi-ethnic, multiracial. So they have to make QAnon more acceptable to various groups. That's terrifying. Especially because, I mean, Sasha, I want you to ask this question you have about recruiting of the women here, because I feel like given the racist nature of QAnon, but then recruiting people of color to be part of it, seems like people who are part of it would then be participating in something that goes against their own interests. And this is sort of Misasha's question here too. On our podcast, we talk a lot about the influence that women have, right? Even if they don't know that they have it necessarily. And, you know, your book also suggests that very influence as well, especially when it comes to QAnon and really pushing QAnon at the start. And so, I had a conversation with a friend who was talking about another friend who had been posting a bunch of stuff on Facebook, which was, you know, probably pushing that information from that Facebook algorithm that was, you know, pushing this to the top of their feeds. And it was very much about men being pedophiles, right? And so the articles were about that and white men being pedophiles. But the friend and I were having this conversation saying, but doesn't she realize basically she's profiling her husband right here and what she's posting, yet she's so convinced that this is true, why would you act against your own self-interest there? And I think that goes to, you know, the recruiting people of color to be in something that's fundamentally racist. What's in it for people? And, And I really struggle with why you would do that. And especially white women at the start, really pushing these theories. I mean, this is exactly what happens when people who are, are not super wealthy, white, poor people voting Republican, they're voting against their interests. They have been manipulated to vote against things like a higher minimum wage, unionization, free health care. Like in other words, it's one of the reasons why, and again, this is because I'm a political scientist, but the National Science Foundation a few years ago banned any funding, any research in political science because the data was coming out in American politics that people who were poor and Republican were voting precisely against their interests. But what we saw, for example, last summer, so in beginning, let's say, April, May of 2020, what we saw was white women in the 2018 midterms had either they had abandoned the Republicans or more people had come out and voted for the Democrats, which is how the Democrats won the House and maintained their predominance in, in Congress. And they realized, Republicans realized that they were losing these white suburban women. And so this new hashtag campaign on Facebook, Save the Children, which actually was a real charity, but ordinarily it's a charity for people in the global South. It's over 100 years old. It's a fantastic, fabulous charity. They use their hashtag to try to convince this demographic that, you know, they were losing for Donald Trump, that they need to come back on board. And in fact, white suburban women voted for Trump in greater numbers in 2020 than they did in 2016, despite the losses that they suffered in 2018. So the campaign was extremely effective. And we mentioned this in the book, and we didn't have time to do all the data, but we did the data collection afterwards. And so I'll just give you a contrast. In the Facebook Save the Children campaign, you're looking at about 87% of the kids that are portrayed are white. 
and very often blonde, bruised, and bound. You know, this image, right? Save the Children Charity is 97% not white because the charity operates largely in Africa, Latin America, Asia, you know, the global South. So the contrast is really shocking when you're looking at those percentages. But the other thing that was one of these memes that they used over and over again, it's a child and the child has a hand, a very large hand, covering its mouth and nose. And the child looks terrified. And in nine out of 10 times, the child was white, but the hand was black or brown. So what this did is it reinforced this idea that they're coming for your white daughters, which again, is a trope that has existed since 1905. And so there was this idea that, you know, the reason we wanted to amplify the racist messages is precisely because we see them trying to appeal to Latinx communities, trying to appeal to African-American communities, either at the local level because of the school boards or because of these elections. But if most people of color realize the racism in QAnon, there might be a pause before they jump in with both feet. I also want to add something about Nastasia's specific questioning of voting against somebody's interests, right? So it's a bit of a misnomer, so to speak, because really everybody, to some degree, votes against their interests. For example, if you vote to increase the minimum wage and you're not making minimum wage, you're decreasing the pool of money that could potentially go to your earnings. If you're voting for environmental measures that will probably come out of your tax dollars, right? You're voting against your interest to keep a bigger car, to have a bigger house, to like do all these things that require less effort and cost less than it would to preserve the environment. So we all do things that are contrary to our personal interests, whether we're liberal or conservative, QAnon or, or not. It's just something we're willing to give up for something bigger. So I don't think there is any reason to be terribly surprised that these people are willing to give up something. The interesting question, I think, is what are they giving it up for? That is interesting. You know, the other thing we talk a lot on our show about is belonging. The sense of belonging is just fundamental to, from what I understand, the human psyche. And so can you talk to us about how not belonging can go horribly wrong or perhaps maybe has gone horribly wrong when it comes to this psychological need to be in the in-group as it relates to QAnon? Yeah. So even before COVID, USA was getting lonelier. We have measures of this from both self-report. So people are asked how lonely you are and eight times more Americans rate themselves as extremely lonely as compared to, for example, Europeans. We live relatively more isolated lives, objectively speaking, because a lot of us drive personal cars instead of public transportation. We live in single family houses instead of apartment buildings. We are just able to avoid people, which is a blessing and a curse. But by objective measures, even before COVID, it was becoming to be more of a curse. So an average American went from having about three to four close friends in the 1960s and 70s to having one in the 2000s. So we were getting to be lonelier and there was a corresponding increase in psychopathology that's commonly associated with loneliness because loneliness is a horrific condition that has health impacts that are similar to smoking, 
like two packs of cigarettes a day. We could actually trace loneliness to chronic heart disease, inflammation, all kinds of horrible health issues, not to mention psychological issues. And then with COVID, this already building problem just became amplified many fold. Because of course, people went into lockdowns, a lot of people became laid off from their work. And especially if you don't live in a household with a bunch of family members, this could be a terribly lonely situation. And as already mentioned, we can trace the growth of QAnon fellowship to the beginning of COVID lockdowns, where it went from just slightly increasing over time, a little bit of a slope on a graph, to just a geometric progression, just skyrocketing. And so it was a combination of this horrible isolation from the lockdowns. And also the only window into the world for most people was their computer screen or their phone screen or their iPad screen and the social media. And the social media have this interesting effect where you think you go there for social connection. But we have research that shows that what happens is the more you use social media, the more isolated you end up feeling. It's kind of like drugs of addiction in that sense, in that you go to them to seek release, relief from some pain, and they end up causing you more pain. So it's this artificial system that it seems like it's going to relieve loneliness, but it actually magnifies it, right? And then on top of that, we also had these algorithms built into the most prolific social media platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, that very quickly drove inquiries that were quote unquote legitimate, like, you know, you wanted to know more about COVID or you wanted to know more about Donald Trump as the presidential candidate. And in three to four clicks, you would end up at QAnon content, sometimes not even realizing that that was what you were perusing, right? So it was kind of a perfect storm and loneliness was at the center of it. And one of the things that QAnon did very well is providing people with this sense of community. So you ended up day or night able to reach this community of people who shared your fundamental beliefs who were willing to engage in your deepest fears and, and anxieties and mirror them and offer emotional support and also confirmation of you know, whatever biases you already had. And these communal problem solving of the puzzles that you posted was a very effective way to create an illusion of a community, a society, a crowd of like-minded others that people were desperate to find, very often, ironically, at the expense of losing their actual real-world community because families fell apart, friendships broke, even like mothers and children or siblings stopped talking to each other when one person ended up falling into the rabbit hole of QAnon conspiracy theories. So it's a very paradoxical and very dangerous spiral that benefited from COVID lockdown, very little information available about the virus at the beginning of it, which caused a lot of anxiety and people wanted answers, and the algorithms and social media that drove them to call QAnon community. When I was in corporate America, I remember the volunteer, they would be like this community service that we would all go and do this project together. And it would foster the sense of community within the people who did that together. And it's interesting to me, a little frightening to me that during COVID, people were doing these things, solving problems together and doing it online in these sort of negative spirals. 
And there's not enough to offset that in the good way. I don't see bands of people in communities going and rallying around, like picking the weeds off the local school grounds or what other projects we can do. But it would certainly sounds like it could be helpful if we help pull people into the real world and a sense of community and purpose and participation around a project then. And it's people who are not QAnon who really need to double down on it and be more vocal about creating those opportunities for engagement, probably, to help offset that. Sort of like an online team building exercise, right? Because what happens is, you know, I was teaching a class on conspiracy theory while we were writing the book and trying to explain this to my students. Conspiracy theories give people some sort of sucker. It makes them feel better. Not because, you know, there's this good conspiracy going on, but that if someone gets hit by a bus crossing the street, their death is so random. It's so out of the blue. It's so hard to comprehend. But if you think that the bus driver was aiming for them, okay, now that makes sense. And so for whatever reason, having these conspiracy theories to explain where COVID-19 came out from, it was a weaponized virus that China unleashed, or, you know, this is one of their theories, or that it was done on purpose in order to forcibly vaccinate people and chip them so that Bill Gates could follow us and track us. But all of the stuff that they were saying, for whatever reason, this conspiracy theory made people feel better than the not knowing, because the not knowing took away their sense or their feeling of control. And in in this very crazy way, by believing in these conspiracy theories, people felt that they were taking control again of their lives. But it's this idea of people don't like to be uncomfortable and that discomfort of being out of control might really need mean that people would rather feel angry or feel any other emotion other than lonely or not knowing or out of control and just sitting there at the mercy of some greater forces. Misasha and I have talked about the need for social safety nets in our country because Sophia, like you said, we're very individualistic in our country and some people think we don't need other people, but you get your trash collected. So you, you do rely on other people. We're not looking at reality in the same way. Is there is there any difference that you see when a governmental policy like healthcare in terms of safety nets or education that's a good quality education across the board, like can those bigger policies help form this resilience against conspiracy theories or can we not say that necessarily because QAnon also has taken root in other countries that have those safety nets? So it's especially successful in the US and there have to be reasons for that. And I believe that one of the reasons is just the structure of the society, how far away physically we are from others and how lonely as a result. And one of the empirically supported protective factors against both loneliness and all kinds of psychological problems that we know from research are very common among QAnon followers is volunteering. As you mentioned, you know, it's a way to not only build a community of like-minded others, but also very often when people volunteer, they help less fortunate others, which helps to create a kind of scale of, you know, gratitude, blessing, something, which in itself is a fundamental asset to have in your psyche, right? There are others who suffer more. And what's more important, I can actually make their lives better. So that imbues your existence with meaning and also with perspective. So volunteering, unfortunately, is not nearly as popular as it would be if we were guided just by research results that shows its benefits. And it's definitely one of the things that I think would be important to implement, to guard people from the danger of conspiracy theories. But 
all kinds of real life relationships are also an important buffer. And we are so sucked into the social media, myself included. I'm so guilty of it. Like I spent, I don't want to know how much screen time I waste every day on social media. It's a very hard habit to break. Even designers of the social media platforms, some of them are speaking out about its dangers. And it's something that we need to be aware of and to make an effort to kind of, you know, reorient our lives away from that and toward real physically like face-to-face based relationships. I mean, one of the things to consider, and this is okay, now I'm not a psychologist, but both in the way that the Q drops were structured, that they were preceded, but when people would solve the puzzle, they would feel very proud of themselves. Like, oh, I'm so clever. And I think that's part of that same almost egotistical streak exists in the solution, which is helping people less fortunate than you. Because, you know, on the one hand, there's a there before the grace of God go I. You know, you're helping at a soup kitchen, you have a home and a roof over your head and food on the table. And so by helping others, you also feel good about yourself. But it's always about centering the individual self and sort of feeding that ego. And so I think in the same way that the problem and the solution are both about making people feel good about themselves. But one manifests an altruistic move. You know, this is about genuinely helping others. And I think that that's where the Save the Children campaign was so effective. People thought they were doing something good for others, even though all they were doing was posting with the hashtag or, you know, we have the women, we call them the Q moms, the women in Anaheim with the posters, save the children and stop the pedophiles and so on. But I think so much of this still centers around the individual and either you feel good about yourself because you're smarter than everyone else, you figured out the puzzles and now you're almost like proselytizing to tell everybody about it or you're helping other people and in doing so, you also feel good about yourself because, oh, look, I'm doing this good deed. (sighs) You know, that's a lot to think about. And Sarah had sort of alluded to this next question that would build off of this, but, you know, we've had discussions with, and I can think of one in particular with other people who talk about conspiracy theories where, you know, the question has been, how do you pull people back from the conspiracy theory? Right. And the answer that we got at that point was like, you really can't. It's very difficult and it's very layered. So I'm super curious to hear, you know, your thoughts on how or can we, you know, bring people back once they have, you know, fully espoused their QAnon beliefs. Is it reconnecting with them through, you know, on a personal level? Is it, you know, making, look, showing them there's different communities, you know, and maybe one that works better for them than this, the community of QAnon that has sustained them for this long, or is it something else or is it nothing at all? I'm super curious. So in the book, we have a chapter that's designed to address something like this question. And we approach it from all kinds of different perspectives. So what can the government do in terms of holding the social media giants accountable and making them transparent and building in safeguards to protect us from malicious actors, whether foreign or domestic, who may prey on vulnerable individuals through social media and individually as well. So I think it's useful to keep in mind that QAnon followers can be roughly divided into three different categories. The first is what we call diehards. 
they're so deep into that rabbit hole, they can't see the light. It's probably not a good time to try to get them out of it because all you're going to get is resistance and they're going to become even more entrenched in their beliefs if you try to argue them out of it. And then we have two other categories. So we have doubters. These people are like in and out of QAnon. So maybe they haven't made up their mind. Maybe they're very easily influenced by whoever they spend the most time with. But it seems that, you know, today they think that COVID is a hoax and tomorrow, you know, maybe they're interested in vaccination. And then there are people who are defectors, people who maybe used to be really into QAnon, but for whatever reason, either because the prophecy didn't come true or because they figured out that some of the Q drops had false information or for whatever reason they came back. So these last two categories, the doubters and the defectors, are where we can make difference in these individuals' lives if we're positioned you know, with their immediate circle to have some degree of trust. So the first thing to remember is it's important not to make things worse. And one thing that we know that will make things worse is trying to logically convince people that their beliefs are wrong. So hard. That's what I want to use is logic. I know. Just don't do it. Okay. (laughs) Which is one of the ways that, you know, for example, you know, the slogan, just don't do it against drugs. It did nothing. People still did it, you know, because it's just when people subscribe to a certain ideology, there's usually a very strong emotional commitment that you don't see. What you see is their logical explanation of this commitment. And even if you manage to succeed to, you know, win the argument with them on the logic, this whole rest of the iceberg underneath the surface, which is their emotional commitment, is going to remain there. And so a day later, a week later, they're going to come up with new logical reasons why you were wrong and they were right. And you just, you know, pressured them or, you know, did a gotcha moment or whatever. So that's not a good thing to do, trying to argue on the basis of logic. What are some good things to do? One thing is try to offer support in any way that you can socially, you know, being there for this person, because as we've discussed already, a lot of QAnon appeal is a social connection. And so if you push a person away based on their beliefs, if you, you know, look at them with a disgust face or angry face every time they talk about something that's very important to them you're going to push them deeper into that rabbit hole, okay? On the opposite end of that continuum, if you tell a person, I understand how you feel, just this phrase alone, I understand how you feel, it gets you out of the cognitive space, right? Because you don't need to believe that there are, you know, children being abused in the basement of a pizza shop in Washington, D.C. to understand that this person is really concerned about children. You're connecting with them on an emotional level. And research shows that this phrase makes people more open to opinions that are opposite to theirs. So you can like crack that closed door open just a little bit. And maybe, you know, in time, the person will be more receptive to the reality that is not queuing on. Another interesting thing that research has shown is very useful is taking a walk in the woods, invite the person for a walk in the park, in the greenery. Because we know from social psychology research that that reduces opinion polarization. So if you are a Democrat who hates, you know, Texas Republicans at the moment, research shows that walking in the the woods will make you a little bit less 
negative toward them. And it will do the same thing for a QAnon supporter. They are going to be a little less polarized, less radicalized, and therefore more receptive to alternative views. So these are just like simple psychological tricks that are going to, if nothing else, enrich the social lives of QAnon followers. And just that in itself might be what they need in order to break the habit. I mean, Sophia's first suggestion, which in counterterrorism, we call it the redirect mode. In other words, you're redirecting their energies from this to that. And this is the kinds of work that Moonshot CVE is doing in order, let's say, for instance, someone Googles, how do I kill a insert the name of an ethnic minority, instead of Google generating, here's how you kill one of them, they actually have worked with the algorithms to be like, well, here's a video why you shouldn't be killing people. So this redirect method has been apparently very effective. It's a counter violent radicalization. And it's important that, you know, when you start with, I understand that you're upset, I understand that you're disappointed. I agree. Trafficking is terrible. What's the best way to counter trafficking? Well, maybe we can work with this legitimate counter trafficking organization that is preventing all these girls from Thailand being, you know, sent to the United States to work in massage parlors and blah, blah, blah. In other words, many of the core fundamental issues of QAnon are true. I mean, there is a problem of child trafficking. There is a problem of pedophilia. There is a problem that in Hollywood, there's a casting couch and women are not treated well, but it's not the problem you're talking about. So if you can start with a basis of agreement and then work from there, you're actually, you know, you're going from strength to strength instead of each person taking a side and then, you know, your backs are against each other and you're not listening anymore. And it just gets into a shouting match. As I hear this, I mean, Sasha, I'm curious, I'm processing this also through the lens of being a parent. And this idea of dropping down from my mind and the logic and into my heart and being there as a connected human being, and I see you and you see me and you know we can have compassion for one another really reminds me of not saying that this is all about parenting children, but like this idea of really connecting with human beings for who we are at our core, like children were before they sort of get grown up into adults and into all of these things, right? It's like connecting to the purity of each other's spirit or if you, I don't know, whatever language you want to do to honor that person's being, it feels like we're going back there because I can't logic my way with the kids sometimes. But if you, they're having a tantrum and you look them in the face, wow, you sound really frustrated. Let's look at the problem from a different perspective. I mean, it's a skill that I think we all know how to execute if we remember ourselves in that moment, right? Like we can be that person that loves that other person and can have a conversation about their feelings. So- I mean, it's one of the things that we wanted people to start from a position of compassion. And this is the other thing that we make very clear in the book. I'm separating out someone like Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's taking advantage of this community in order for their coffers, their donations, or for their influence in Congress, their votes. People like uh, former Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who's making money off of this, Linwood, and Sidney Powell, like, I want to make the distinction that as we're talking about extending kindness and graciousness and understanding, that's for the people who believe in QAnon, not for the QAnon influencers who have monetized this and are really just exploiting what they perceive as these rubes. And Sophia, you said something too. I, I have three kids for the record. <laughs> and uh, 
what you're saying is so true, but I feel like it's so hard for a lot of us because we've been trained to explain our actions in logical terms. Even like I catch myself asking my guess, why did you do that? Well, there may not be a good reason, you know, whatever they respond with is not necessarily, you know, they just did it because it was it seemed like a good thing to do at the moment, you know? And so, especially for some of us who live inside of our heads, like, you know, intellectuals or whatever, it's hard to remember that there is this other level that is bigger and deeper and a lot more moving, you know, that we can connect on. It's a constant struggle for, (laughs) for me and I suspect for some others too, but I think making that an intention really helps me just making that a conscious intention that I will try to reach behind the logic and into the compassionate space and, you know, whatever shared humanity, it helps. So I think just that those, that key phrase of, I understand how you feel is really important. I think about in my adult relationships too, just taking a breath and saying that when you're in these moments where my immediate reaction is to logic my way out of something. And even talking to my partner or talking to my parents or, you know, to just take a breath and acknowledge that first, I can see the conversation opening in a different way than it would otherwise, which would sort of be an immediate shutdown. So I'm going to remember that one. But, you know, I think as is evident, we could talk about QAnon and everything around it all day. But, you know, trying to be respectful of both of your times as well. What haven't we asked yet that you think is important for all of us to think about or know? I mean, for me, I think it's one of the things I've been like a drumbeat since February, where I would say, follow the money. Who's making money off of this? And finding out who, like, that's for me was more salient than all of the HBO and the Vice documentaries tracking the Q drops to Ron Watkins or to a selection of maybe four or five different people that it could be, or that, you know, other people are saying that it's a psyop and that it's Russian or something else. I think when you look to see who's making the money and who's benefiting, as with anything, with any criminal endeavor, following the money is very illustrative and shining the light on that process certainly could help people who believe in QAnon start to have those doubts. Because I think the the challenge for us, we know that the people who are diehards are going to triple and quadruple on whatever up or down, you know, to the end teeth. We're probably not going to be able to convince everyone. And I think, you know, one of the things Sophia says is we have to moderate our expectations. We're not going to be able to get rid of it completely in the same way that we're never going to be able to completely get rid of terrorism. 20 years after 9-11, we still have these very same problems that we had before the war on terror. But what if we can get some of the doubters into defectors, or if we can get some of the diehards to start to doubt by planting that little seed of doubt and then letting that germinate and grow and nurturing that, it's really important that, you know, as people who are listening to your podcast, not disinviting, you know, your second cousin from Thanksgiving, if you're having Thanksgiving together this year, because they believe in QAnon, you know, what you can do and not saying, listen, you know, Harriet, you can come, but the moment you start talking about QAnon, you're out. Like, that's not the understanding and empathy that we're advocating. But we're also cognizant of the fact that we don't want to have people throwing mashed potatoes at each other. So, you know, we can start with the, you know, listen, last night, 
was Rosh Hashanah. I was at a table with Republicans and they brought up Afghanistan and that this uh, departure from Afghanistan was a major cluster F. And I said, yes, it, it was. And so we start from the position, yes, it's a mess. And I said, but you know, really, the other administration had three years to get those people out and they didn't. And then Stephen Miller blocked all the SIVs. Oh, and then Pompeo didn't include the Afghan government in the negotiations with the Taliban. And so it wasn't that I started with, well, you think the other guy would have done better. I started from the position of, I see where you're coming from. And here, let's share the things we agree on. But now let me add some information to chip away at what you think you know from watching Fox News. And, you know, until we get, and this is, again, one of the things we put in the book, until the Republican Party disavows QAnon, we are facing a massive challenge of having a Q caucus in Congress and the Senate larger than what the Tea Party was. Because for all the years between Sophie and I, we have almost 50 years of studying terrorism between the two of us. We've never had 30 million people believing in a terrorist group. And so the fact that those numbers alone in the United States are so potentially overwhelming, we have to take this seriously, even though a lot of the specific content of their beliefs is just so preposterous. I just want to kind of spin off of that a little bit as my last remark. Even though I hear a lot of both professionals in the field of terrorism research and lay people comparing QAnon to terrorism, it's really not a terrorist group for a variety of reasons that, you know, I'd be happy to discuss another time, but it really doesn't look or act anything like a terrorist group. And the biggest threat, as I mentioned from it, is not a mass casualty event. It is a gradual erosion of the social fabric and the institution that make our democracy possible. And so if you think about it this way, then it is easy to see that each of us has a role in protecting our society from the damage of QAnon. Knowing what you know about QAnon, if you've listened to this episode, right, maybe make it your intention to hold radicalization at your gate. Don't become combative or argumentative. Invite finding common ground with people you know who are maybe deep in QAnon rabbit hole or, you know, tethering on the edge of it. And at least within your immediate social environment, find a way to coexist that will make it possible for these QAnon followers to maybe one day come out of this delusion and embrace reality once again. Thank you. I love that because it really gives people a sense of possibility. We all have the power of influence within our own spheres and we can make that choice. So with the tools that you shared with us, you know, I understand how you feel and the information that you gathered. Hopefully anybody, if this episode resonates with anybody, you let us know. Thank you again for your time. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news. We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk. 
or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.